Well, we've been talking about uh, decisions, good decisions, hard decisions. Today, let's talk about bad decisions. You know, one of the great themes of the Bible is resilience, uh, the ability to get back up when you've been knocked down. This theme comes against the backdrop of bad decisions. And the Bible is full of bad decisions because I make them, you make them, people in the Bible made them as well. Bad decisions are just all over the place. They're part of life. But the good news of the gospel is that when you and I make a bad decision and turn to Jesus, he gives us the ability to get back up. Resilience. So let's open a text today that points us to this great theme. It's a text that seems to go from bad to really bad, but it actually is a text designed to help God's people get back up and get on with their lives. Would you uh, open a Bible to Psalm 137? If you've got a pew Bible there in your hand, uh, turn to page 502. Um, if you're able, let's all stand. We'll read this word aloud together as an act of worship. And when we're done reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord so that if you believe it, you can say thanks be to God. Listen closely. You're hearing God's holy word, Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and there we wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs and our tormentors asked for mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How could we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand wither. Let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem's fall, how they said, tear it down, tear it down, down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, you devastator, happy shall they be who pay you back what you have done to us. Happy shall they be who take your little ones and dash them against the rock. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. Well, this psalm takes a really dark turn there at the end. And there's a caution here for us. Here's the caution. Pain we don't turn into prayer becomes pain that turns into more pain. Pain that we don't turn into prayer becomes pain that turns into more pain. So a little history. At this point in Israel's life, shortly after 587 BC, there have been a lot of bad decisions all around. Israel has made bad decisions, so they're off in exile. It's a consequence of their decisions, 70 years in captivity. Babylon has made bad decisions. They have invaded Judah. They have burned Jerusalem to the ground. And if you read carefully here at the end, verses 8 and 9, this idea of payback suggests that when Babylon came to Jerusalem, they were the ones dashing uh, babies to the rock. So they committed war crimes. So, so there are bad decisions all around here. And the question is, what will God's people do? This time, just after 587 B.C., is also the time of Jeremiah's ministry, the great prophet, the weeping prophet. And the Lord gave his people a decision-making model through Jeremiah. We've been talking about this each week for these last three weeks. And let's remember the verse. I'll put it on the screen. Jeremiah 6.16. It says, stand at the crossroads and look. 
and ask for the ancient paths where the good way lies and walk in it and find rest for your souls. Find rest for your souls. That's the promise of this. But if you look at the verbs there, you get the model. Stand, look, ask, walk. Stand, look, ask, and walk. Slaw, you know, is the acronym. I don't know what that means. But it's how you make wise decisions, says the Bible, says the Lord. And by the way, it's what's happening here in Psalm 137 as well. And I'd like for you to see that. So just consider the model as we look again at this uh, text. To stand at a crossroads is to recognize that you have a decision to make, that this is a decision point. Okay? Now, it's kind of unexpected to think that exiles would have a decision to make because intrinsic to being an exile is to be captive which is to have fewer options it's as though they're trapped by this web of canals that sustains this great ancient city of Babylon they're by the waters of Babylon they don't see any paths just the rivers of of Babylon and they what what decisions can they really make but oh they seem to notice they actually do have a decision they can make and that decision is below the surface of the waters It's their emotions. Okay, look at verse 3. Here's what they say. Our tormentors asked for mirth, meaning happiness. That's an emotion. But we sat down, verse 1, and wept. That's an emotion. They asked for mirth, sing us one of the songs. We hung up our harps and we sat down and we wept, mourning. So you see, they made a decision about their emotional life. Interesting. They do have a decision to make. Mirth? Or mourning, right? It's below the surface, but it's, it's, it's there. It's emotion. So that in that sense, they're standing at a crossroads. And then the next step is to look. To look is to look at the different paths that you could take at this crossroads and think where they would lead. It's sort of refreshing to see that Christians are asked to use their brain. Yeah, look down the different paths and see where they would lead and then use your mind. And so they're here, they're thinking, well... If we were to sing a song of mirth for our captors, that would only deepen the trauma that we've experienced. And in a way, we'd become co-conspirators with our tormentors. Why would we perform a song for them? Uh, if If we sit here in our grief and loss and don't acknowledge it, through mourning, it won't go away. What will really happen, perhaps they think, is that it will transmute into something dark and malicious beneath the surface. As the Bible calls it, a root of bitterness or a hardness of heart. And so now look again at the text in verses 5 and 6. The, the writer pronounces a malediction on himself if he goes down that path. Oh, if I, if I sing that song, a mirth song here, let my right hand wither. That would be the one you play the, the harp with. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. Like, may I never be able to sing any song ever again if I do that. See, they realize how destructive it would be to themselves if they were to ignore their own grief and loss in this moment. So they're looking down that path and going, I don't want to go there. That's looking. Stand, look. The third step is to ask. Ask for the ancient paths. And to ask for the ancient paths is to interact with our sacred companion. To realize, ah, I'm not alone at this crossroad. My sacred companion is here. And what we ask for are the ancient paths. So this is the Lord. And the ancient paths are the scriptures. We learned that week one. And and, and so to, to have a conversation with the Lord through the scriptures is what it means to ask. And we see in verse seven now, the psalmist is speaking with the Lord. This is the first time. Verse seven. 
there are three stanzas here and we see the movement of audience. First, he's speaking to the exiles and then he's speaking to himself about the hand in his mouth. Now, ah, he's speaking to the Lord. They're in conversation. Remember, O Lord, he says. And of course, the content of the speech is, is, is raw. The words are vicious. Uh, they're foreign to us. But they're not uncommon in scripture. Because what the scriptures present in this moment is a form of prayer, an ancient form of prayer called lament. And Psalm 137 is a lament. And the psalmist engages the language of lament. And what, what we mean by lament is, lament is, a, is pain turned into prayer. That's what lament is. It's pain turned into prayer. So he's asking the Lord and he's, he's, he's engaging in this ancient form of prayer called lament. It's to ask. And then the last step is to walk. It's to take a step. It's to take a step with the sacred companion in a new direction. And the psalm here only hints at what that direction might be, what that step might be. But contrary to what most people assume, I believe it's going to be a step of peace. A step of peace, not a step of aggression, not a step of violence. Look at verse 9 again. He, he, what he doesn't say is, I'll pay you back. He doesn't even say, God will pay you back. He says, happy shall they be. Which is to say, the psalmist disassociates himself from revenge. He delegates any need for retribution to some future person, some unknown person. So he's been able to separate himself from the need for vengeance. His next step, therefore, is not a step of aggression, but rather a step of peace. He puts himself in a position through the Lord's work in this prayer to embody the calling of all Israelites. The descendants of Abraham were blessed to be a blessing. Not to dash Babylonians against the rock, but to bless them. He puts himself in a position to be obedient to what the Lord tells the exiles to do through Jeremiah in chapter 29, which is to pray for the peace of the city, to, to pray for the welfare of the people in Babylon. So it's the lament that puts him in a position now to take a step of peace. And I believe that's where he's going to go. He's walking now. So this is resilience. They've been knocked down, but they're getting back up. This is a good decision after all kinds of bad decisions. Stand, look, ask, and walk. That's what you can do. That's what I can do no matter what. No matter what decisions you made, no matter what decisions other people have made, no matter whether decisions were bad or even good. You know what? Even when you make a good decision, there's pain. Change always requires loss. And with loss comes hurt and pain. So even when we grow, we're changing. Even as we age, we're losing and there's pain that comes with that. We have to acknowledge that. That's just part of life. As they say, no one likes change except babies and even they cry. So when we experience change, the question isn't will we face pain or not? The question is what will you do with the pain that you will face? You see, that's, the, that's, that's where laments come in. See, the surprise of the text is, is that there's a caution here, but there isn't just a caution, there's also an invitation. Listen to the invitation. Here's how I would say it. Pain we turn into prayer becomes pain God turns into peace. See that? That's the, that's the takeaway today. Pain we turn into prayer becomes pain that God turns into peace. Contemporary scholars are turning to Psalm 137 today as a as an example of post-traumatic growth. 
I've told you a little while ago, last year I went to, uh, took a class from a, a brilliant young Old Testament scholar named Isabel Hamley. Isabel Hamley is, uh, she's a theological advisor and chaplain to the Archbishop of Canterbury in London. And uh, she's absolutely fantastic. She said, she, she said that the Archbishop, there'd be a terrorist attack like in London and he'd call her immediately, give me a psalm I can use, you know, for like an impromptu service later that night or a press conference or something. So she'd pull out her Bible and she'd rifle through looking for a psalm. She'd find just the right one. And then she'd find some horrible part in the psalm like dashing babies' heads against the rock. She'd go, can't use that one. She'd keep going. She'd go, it was like really actually a hard challenge because there are hard parts in lots of the Bible. And, and she realized, you know what? come to figure out it's the hard parts that victims of trauma need. They actually need the hard parts. She walked us through as students through Psalm 137. And she said, you know, the, the, the Psalm gives victims a, a words to find a voice after trauma. The Psalms of lament give victims vocabulary for their pain. The refusal to sing a song for their captors is about refusing to be identified with the trauma or the loss. The hard words of emotion, anger, vindication, desire for vindication, revenge, is about entrusting our darkest feelings to a God who can hear them, can receive them, and ultimately transform them. And Isabel Hamley and the Archbishop have developed this whole ministry for media who experience secondary trauma when they cover terrorist attacks. Here's what she said. I wrote this in my notes. I love this. She says, when we put anger in the place of prayer, it is legitimate but not ultimate. When we put anger in the place of prayer, it's legitimate but not ultimate, Isabel Hamley. So the research is showing that those who experience post-traumatic growth do so precisely because they find a way to incorporate their trauma into a larger, better narrative. And this is what God does when we lament. We take our grief and loss, we put it in his hands and we're putting it in a larger narrative, the narrative of God's redemptive plan for all pain in this whole creation. God's work to reconcile the world to himself and the message of the gospel becomes this larger narrative that is great enough to hold on to our pain. So this is the invitation of the text. Pain we turn into prayer becomes pain God turns into peace. So no matter what decisions have been made, the best decision is always to pray through the pain. You've heard something like that before, right? Athletes say we have to play through the pain. Well, this is about pray, you pray through the pain. Listen to this little bit of wisdom from the book of Ecclesiastes. I found this just recently, I love it. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Okay, that's Ecclesiastes 7.4. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. But the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. With these things, they're pithy. You have to kind of think, what does that mean, right? What's he saying? I think he's saying the ability to enter into pain is wisdom. The ability to enter into your pain. The ability to enter into somebody else's pain. Wisdom. He says the house of mourning. To be able to go into that house, that's wisdom. And the other part of the couplet says and the tendency to avoid or deny pain that's folly you know to laugh it off to explain it away to use some tired platitude to drown it out this is folly the house of mirth hey it's all good we're fine folly 
Ecclesiastes says. Now, this is deeply, deeply countercultural in America. I mean, for example, I say, how you doing? And you say, yeah, you guys are like, you're, lit, you're liturgically, attu- liturgically attuned, right? I mean, we're all Presbyterians now. Um, this is a secular liturgy. How you doing? Fine, right? But what's that mean? What does fine mean? I didn't even know. So I looked it up in the dictionary. Here's what Webster says. Superior in kind, quality, or appearance, excellent. So is that what we mean? How you doing? I'm superior in kind, quality, or appearance. I'm excellent. Is that true? You sound like a piece of fruit. I like the Urban Dictionary better. So I looked up, the Urban Dictionary oftentimes gets it right. It's a word to use when you're depressed, but you don't want to worry another person. And so you end up worrying them anyway, though. That's the Urban Dictionary. Write that down. That's going to stick, right? How you doing? Fine. House of mirth. It's awesome. Fine. So we think we're supposed to say that. We think we're supposed to be that. And by the way, especially Christians, especially you guys, right? I mean, how you doing, brother? Praise God. He's just broken up with his girlfriend. Praise God. How you doing, sister? Blessed. Her father just died, but blessed, right? We're good. We're great, victorious, abundant. Why do we say this? Because we think if we've got Jesus in our lives, we should have a smile on our faces. We're living the mountaintop. We're living the dream all the time. But remember Jesus. Jesus walked through valleys. Jesus walked through valleys. They say he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. He got angry and turned over tables. He wept. He prayed with loud cries and tears. Hebrews 5 tells us he was deeply distressed and troubled. Mark 14 tells us, saying, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. That's Jesus. How you doing? I think I'm dying in grief. He prayed through his pain. And according to Pete Scazzaro, the Bible teaches, he describes three phases for processing grief and loss. And I want to share these with you. You might take a picture. Um, you can think about these later. Three, these are Bibles sort of summarize the three phases of, of processing grief and loss in a healthy way, according to the Bible. The first is to pay attention to pain. The second is to wait in the confusing in between. And the third is to allow the old to be birthed in the new. I'm sorry, I think I have that backwards. To allow the new to be birthed in the old. Uh, Pete Scazzaro, Emotionally Healthy Discipleship. The first phrase is to pay attention to the pain. Let me just walk through this quickly. What it means is to identify the emotion. Get below the water line, sit there, sit down at the waters of your emotions and weep. Raise a lament in anger if that's where you are. You have to be able to see that. You do have emotions, you know, don't you? You do know that, right? You do have emotions. And this guy thinks he's all brain over here. This guy thinks he's all brawn over here. No, you're, you're an emotional being. And your emotions matter. And if you don't take the time to look at your emotions and process them, what you're going to do is leak them. You're leaking emotions all day long because you didn't look at them and process them. Pete Scazzera has this great exercise. He calls it exploring the iceberg. It's a way we look below the waters of Babylon. There are four questions that you can ask yourself. I love these questions. Again, you might take a picture of these. What are you angry about? What are you sad about? What are you anxious about? What are you glad about? I have them now memorized. 
These are great questions for the end of the day as you're lying in bed or questions uh, for a conversation starter at a dinner table or roommates. This is about paying attention to the pain. The second phase is waiting in the confusing in between time, waiting on the Lord. Did you know that around this time, 587 in uh, Jerusalem and in Babylon, there were a bunch of false prophets that were running around. They were basically saying, ah, this is no big deal. Don't worry. God's going to get us through this. You'll be home tomorrow. Uh, This is nothing. And the Lord says to Jeremiah, no, not true. Not true. False prophets. 70 years you're going to be here. Don't try to figure this out. Don't try to fix it. Don't try to move on too fast. Settle down, plant gardens, get married. This is your life now. So we're waiting in the in-between. You're going to wait on me. It'll come to an end, but I'm the one who's going to bring it to an end. So that's waiting in the confusing in-between times. And then the third phase is to allow the new to be birthed in the old. Look for something new. Don't get stuck in phase one. Don't get stuck in phase two. Be looking. Don't be like those prisoners of war, you know, and they get liberated. They go back into their lice-infested barracks. Why? Not because that's good, but because it's just the world they know. It's familiar, and they go back in there. And the Bible says no. Psalm 137 says no. Notice the repetition of the word remember. Remember, 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 the psalmist says, knowing that there's great danger in our nostalgia. The pull of the past is so strong, it'll pull us back into a place that's destructive. The urge to go backwards to a past that no longer exists can keep us from even seeing the new and redemptive work of God right in front of us. I'm doing a new thing, the Lord is saying, but if we're always looking backward, we can't even see it. And do you know what was birthed out of the exile? 600 years later, when Jesus comes, it's actually these communities that were spread, Jewish communities scattered far and wide, the Jewish diaspora that became the beachheads for the gospel as the word of Jesus spread from one city to the next. It was these exiles, their descendants, that became the beginning of a movement that was going to touch and change the whole world. Oh, what new life came out of old death and grief. Pray through your pain. Pray through your pain. Eugene Peterson writes this, pain isn't the worst thing. Being hated isn't the worst thing. Being separated from the one you love isn't the worst thing. Death isn't the worst thing. The worst thing is failing to deal with reality and becoming disconnected from what is actual. The worst thing is trivializing the honorable, desecrating the sacred. What I do with my grief affects the way you handle your grief. Together we form a community that deals with death and other loss in the context of God's sovereignty. Get this, which is expressed in resurrection. I love that line. We don't become more mature, Peterson writes, more mature human beings by getting lucky or cleverly circumventing loss. And certainly not by avoidance and distraction. No, learn to lament. Learn this lamentation. We're mortals after all. We and everyone around are scheduled for death. Mortis. Get used to it. Take up your cross. It prepares us and those around us for resurrection. When we pray through our pain, we ask God to help us deal with reality. So it seems to me Psalm 137 offers us a caution and an invitation. The caution is bitterness. Bitterness. 
This text stands in the canon as a witness to what can happen to a soul that does not process grief and loss well. Anger, untouched by God's healing grace, will eventually destroy the soul that harbors it. As they say, the refusal to forgive is like drinking poison, expecting the rat to die. No, it's your hand, your hand that will wither, the psalmist says. It's your tongue that will cling to the roof of your mouth. You will be the one no longer able to sing or make music. And anger, untouched by God's healing grace, will eventually turn the victim into the victimizer. As Richard Rohr says, pain that is not transformed is transferred. We leak. Pray the pain or you'll play the pain out in reactivity and aggression more or less subtle than dashing people against the rock. That's the caution, bitterness. The destructive power of unresolved grief and lost cycles of violence. Pain we don't turn into prayer becomes pain that turns into more pain. But there is also an invitation in this text. And the invitation is resilience. Because pain we turn into prayer becomes pain that God turns into peace. You can grow in bitterness or you can grow in grace. You can let the Lord redeem pain and turn us into instruments of his peace. I know these last few years have been hard for us. I think we've experienced as a culture a lot of collective grief and loss. As a culture, the pandemic, racial tensions, political crisis. And now I think we're seeing the violence in our own streets. As a church, we've experienced a lot of collective grief and loss, haven't we? And the question is, how will we handle that? How will we celebrate what we once were? How will we mourn what we've since lost? And most importantly, how will we see what God is doing in a new day, in a new congregation, with great new opportunities right here in front of us? Will we get lost in our pain, get stuck in our past, or will we be present to the present and embrace a new future? I say resilience, maybe I should say resurrection. Because the greater witness of Psalm 137 is to a God who meets us in our grief and loss. We can speak to him in our pain just as the psalmist does because he has come near to our pain. He's entered our pain. Oh my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is Jesus lamenting with us. He's stepping in and singing our song of grief and loss. He knows what it is to be you. Ultimately, God does not send his vengeance on the daughters of Babylon. God does not send his vengeance upon sinners. In the end, God chooses to exhaust his full measure of judgment on the one sinless man who stands in the sinner's place, Jesus Christ. And Jesus gives his life for you and for me, not only to disrupt cycles of violence that tear at this beloved creation, no, Jesus gave his love, as his life, as Eugene Peterson says, to express God's sovereignty in resurrection. Let's pray. Jesus, we pray for courage this morning. There's a journey here, a path, an ancient path. And that path carries us through all kinds of pain. Lord Jesus, the first step in that journey for someone may be to take a step to come forward for healing. If so, would you give that person courage? Would you give them her courage to believe that they're hearing from you today? 
Would you give us courage to come to the cross, to admit that we can't make this journey alone, that we need a savior? Give someone courage to say yes to Jesus for the first time, to become a new creation. Would you give us all courage, courage to follow you into the house of mourning and to pray our pain? Would you give us courage to face reality? Courage to face the reality that you promised those first exiles when you said through Isaiah, do not remember the former things. I am about to do a new thing. Amen.